Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Today's podcast is a very special one. It's not just special because Lance is not on it. It's special because it's a recap of uh, some interviews I did at Autodesk U. And not a recap, it's the the full interviews. So there'll be three interviews. The first person you'll hear from is Phil Reed. He has an interesting story about how he got into architecture, um, into Revit, and into Enscape. And what's cool about it is he explains an alternate path about how to get into architecture that I think you'll really like. The second interview is Clifton Harness. He has a, an amazing program called testfit.io. That's the website, testfit.io. If you're in multifamily or in architecture, um, I think you'll not only really like his program, but it'll, it's an inspiration for people who are trying to do new thing, things. Uh, the last one that I interviewed for this podcast is Ben Gluntz. Uh, I think I'm saying that's right. I never said his last name. It's kind of like gun, but with an L and then a Z at the end. So I'm saying Gluntz, and I hope that's right. Uh, we talk about him, but then also one of his really, really cool projects that I think you'll like. Uh, his company is called Bimsmith, and the product that they have is Forge. And this is a really cool system where you can put together walls and floors. And it sounds kind of nerdy, but for all you architects out there, you'll really like it. So let's jump into the, the conversation with Phil Reed. <laughs> so I'm here with Phil Reed. Uh, and last, last podcast, I was talking to Lance. And I said, oh, I'm going to Autodesk University. This was, you know, Friday, a couple right. days ago. And I said, I'm interviewing some people. I've been, you know, talking. And I said, Phil Reed. He goes, the Phil Reed? And I go, no. I go, he's like, the Revit Phil Reed? I'm like, yes. He's like, that is the Phil Reed. So apparently, you're more famous than even I knew because you are the Phil Reed. So uh, can you tell me, why are you here at Autodesk U? Right. Uh, I came here through the Revit acquisition in the spring of 2002. So I think 2002 or 2003, probably 2003 was the first Autodesk University that I came to. So it's been a while. Yep. Yep. Um, came here through the side door via Revit. Um, I think it was employee 64 or something at Revit Technology. So when the acquisition occurred and the, the consulting team and the dev team and everything rolled into Autodesk, then we were asked to start preparing classes and Revit tracks and BIM tracks at Autodesk University. So I got to be involved that way. Yep. Yep. So how, let's back up. How did you, what were you doing before Revit? Because Revit wasn't Autodesk to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so before that, I went to seminary for four and a half years and studied communications and literature. Uh, went off to New Zealand, got married, came back to the U.S., decided I wanted to study law, medicine, or architecture. And my buddy at seminary went on to study law, and I was back in the States for a wedding, and I thought, you know what, I can narrow this down. I don't want to do medicine because that's, like, really regionally specific. I want to be able to do something forever, no matter where I am. And I kind of narrowed it down to doing law, 
And I said, what do you think? Because he had been through law school, looked very successful, was having a good time. And he said, don't study law. Really? Don't go into law. <laughs> I was like, what? And I kind of reflected on his lifestyle and how things were going. He said, you'll have to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and realize that you have to ruin someone's life to make a living. Oh, that's... He said, if you go into architecture, you'll get to make things. If you go into law, you'll have to tear things apart. Wow. And with that... I applied to Taliesin, uh, got accepted there. I didn't have a strong architectural background. I had a strong drawing and, and sort of aesthetic background. I had good drawing skills. And uh, at the time, Taliesin wasn't, they weren't accredited. Right. I remember that. Yeah, that was, so this was back in the early 90s. So Taliesin wasn't accredited. And I just kind of threw my hands up in the air, and I had family in Asheville, and I had family in Raleigh, and family in Fayetteville, and said, where is an architecture school around those places? And there is the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, which still has a really strong program. So I started, went back to school and studied architecture practically part-time because I had a prior degree, and uh, did my master's degree, an undergraduate degree, at one point simultaneously. So it took me five years to do both programs. Graduated in this fall of 99, uh, went into architectural practice, put myself through school working for engineer, working for a civil engineering firm, and um, about a year and a half, two years into architectural practice, saw Revit in the spring of 2000 and was blown away. Yep. And by the spring of 2001, was working for Revit Technology. So it was good times. So very traditional path. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't I tell my kids the best jobs are all made up and don't exist right now. <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing I tell them is don't go to college to become an employee. Go to college to become an employer because uh, you, you focus differently. Yeah. yeah. What did you do at Revit in the beginning? Uh, I went into Revit. Uh, so my the guys that I really credit to being wonderful mentors uh, is a guy named Dave Heaton and another guy named Hunter Marston. And they were interviewing for a technical support position in the Mid-Atlantic, and I was living in Charlotte, having graduated. Um, I went to Revit. Like, it's just really weird going from architecture firms where they'll throw you pizzas and Coke so you stay late at night. Yep. And then you go to a company to interview in Boston, and they show up with a driver, and they drive you to some company, and you do this interview. It was just really like that was a kind of a made-up experience to begin with. I hadn't experienced that kind of thing. Are you saying it was more professional, or you were more? No, it's just really professional. Like I was used to, yeah. You work in architecture, and you work really hard, and you work long hours, and uh, you know, in a lot of cases, if your salary you don't get overtime, so when they want you to work late and weekends, uh, you get pizza and coke, and you think yeah. that's amazing. But no, it's not amazing. It's getting paid very little in terms of, of yeah. money and food. You to, think it's awesome work. because you didn't have to buy the pizza. Because normally well, in school you do. You That's to. right. You <laughs> would think, yeah, we should talk about that, about yeah. the, the trap of going to architecture school. Um, so I went to Revit and showed them my portfolio and the work that I'd done and the Revit work that I'd done, which they had been, Revit had been using renderings that I was creating, learning how to use Revit uh, in their marketing brochures and weren't asking me permission. And at first I was kind of Oh, offended by that. Like, why would they use my stuff? And they didn't ask. Yeah. And then I realized, wait a minute, no one else is doing this. This could be a good gig. So I went up to Boston and interviewed for this position. And then when I met with Dave Heaton and Steve Burry at the 11th hour, I said, look, I'll be honest with you guys. I really don't want this thing that you're offering because 
if the customer is having problems, then I have to help them fix their problems. Why don't you guys create a group of people that goes to the customer and helps them learn to use and use the technology well so they don't have problems? Yep. And uh, Steve Burry said, well, actually, we're starting a consulting group. And you'll go to the customer, teach them how to use Revit, work with them on projects, mentor them. And I said, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And uh, so they offered me a job. And Steve Burry, Dave Heaton, Robert Mancarini, Hunter Marston, Leonid and Irwin, it was an, an incredibly unique and uncommon experience to work with really brilliant, experienced people that trusted yeah. you to do the, do the right thing by the customer. Yeah. I think that's a great lesson, um, especially for some of the younger people, is that it, it's a fine line when you're interviewing where you can say, I want to do this. And sometimes that doesn't match with reality, yeah. especially coming out of architecture school. But sometimes it's sitting in the back of the boss's head, you know, waiting. And if you don't ask, you can't pursue it and you can't yeah. go that way. So I'll be really honest with what I've... So I went to architecture school late. I was already about 28, 29 years old, married, trying to work full time, trying to pay a mortgage to go to school, not borrow money. And I'll give you my absolutely honest opinion about architecture school is that it is an enormous waste of time. If you want to become an architect, okay, I'll even back it up with stats. Go to the Augie Salary Survey, AUGI. They do an annual salary survey. If you have a technical degree, which is 18 months and really cheap, or you have a high school diploma and time, which means experience, without exception, except for someone who has a PhD, you will make more money. Yep. So the reality of going to architecture school, private school, or out of state, that's about a $60,000 a year investment. Let's call it a quarter million dollars over five years or seven years if you, or six years if you get your master's degree. That is an unrecoverable debt. If you can't learn to solve problems, when you get out of school, you're not paid for what you think. You're paid for what you can do. And if you can't solve problems, then someone can't hire you and let you solve those problems. So they're going to pay you very little money. Like, Correct. without exaggeration, 30 grand a year. And 30 grand a year won't even pay the interest on a quarter million dollar loan. Now, I love that you've gone to school and studied architecture. If you haven't gone to architecture school yet and you want to become an architect, I would absolutely say don't get your undergraduate degree in architecture. While you're in high school, uh, maybe take a year out of high school, go and get a technical degree to learn how to use the tools that help you solve problems which makes you employable and do that for a year and a half. Like that's an 18 month course at a community college. Then go to work for an architecture firm. Yep. Find someone that you enjoy working with. That's a good mentor that does really fine design and they care about the customer. They care about the customer's experience. Go to work for them, work part time and then go to college and study anything else. Study computer engineering. Study engineering. Study engineering. St it doesn't have to be building related. Better if it's not building related. Study another hard science. Study law. Study medicine. Um, study engineering. But work for an architecture firm while you're in school. Now, you're getting real-world experience at this point, and you're making good money. You're also working about 20 hours a week, which means you have enough time to drink, but not too much time. Yep. You have enough time to play, but not too much time. And you're also paying your way through college as you go, which means you're not incurring unrecoverable debt. Now you graduate, and you have an extraordinary portfolio. 
um, take that portfolio, go and get your master's degree in architecture. You will take that portfolio to any fine firm in New York and say, I'd like to go to work for you. And they say, you can solve problems. Yeah. We need people that can solve problems. And, and you've actually been solving problems that are not trivial because you're trying to take all of these different disparate, different um, competing challenges of putting a building together from zoning to site planning to interior kind of form and function and you're trying to put all this together and find the overlap of where it works now that's not that's not a trivial thing and it's and that's advanced just, puzzle making yes okay good good yeah you're learning to solve problems take that and go to work for any acronym firm in new york they will hire you and you don't and and when you say well i don't have a degree in architecture i'm going to get my master's degree my undergraduate degree is in uh, macroeconomics and they'll go fantastic we like people who know about lots of things yep. they will hire you now you're working going to school to get your master's degree and you're not incurring more debt and you will graduate with two degrees that mean that may be in separate directions and you're now financially viable so that takes you to the third thing which is you don't have to be an employee at this point the large acronym firms which do extraordinary work are also very sought after to get into so you're not going to get paid a lot of money. If you leave those firms under stress or for not being paid a lot, effectively, the acronym firms that are in very competitive cities will get offers by young people to work for them as interns, and the young people are willing to pay to work for those firms. So in many cases, the kinds of firms that young people aspire to work for will not pay you a lot and if you decide you, you have no leverage you have no economic leverage to say i now would like to start a family i now would like to buy a house you're out on your own you, they will they you can be replaced very easily replaced um but if you have experience and you don't and you've not taken on unrecoverable debt now you're in the position of actually being an entrepreneur you can start a business if you know how to talk to a customer and be polite and they trust you with their money to do something that in turn will generate meaning and revenue for their customers, now you can be an employer. And you don't have to take on the kind of overhead that it used to take to become an architect, like the kind of physical infrastructure and drafting boards and, and print machines. Like it's a laptop in a, ba in a bag and a team of people working in a co-working space to kind of get it started. And you can run really, really lean like that and a small team can do extraordinary large projects. So I'll give you an example. Um, having had the fortune with work, working for companies that do half a billion dollar high-rise projects, the teams that do that work are about four people. Yes. So you can do enormously large projects, enormously complex work with teams of four people, except you don't have the you don't you don't have the brand of this you know, whatever beautiful acronym firm that you're working yep. for. So you're going to have to say, well, what's important? Is it the vanity of the brand or is it the pride in being an employer and now starting to mentor young people and now working together? Because I can tell you, four people working on a half a billion dollar project do not share the revenue with, with the brand that goes out and pursues that work and gets it. Um, they're going to get a very small part of it. So you just have to... You can make good money and do really meaningful work in architecture. It's not just money. It's not just meaning. I think you have to have a mix of both. But if you go into it from the standpoint of day one, you are going to... Day one, if you willingly take on unrecoverable debt, you'll never pay it off. Yeah. And then you're stuck being an employee, 
you don't have options and you'll never you'll be a slave in that sense it's it's kind of evident in how far some of the colleges have fallen when i interviewed in new york they were impressed that when in my sections my floor thicknesses were realistic which i thought was very basic right so right. so if you have if you uh, increase your feedback loop which is what you're talking about by getting real world experience while you're in college and getting your tech degree or anything like that yeah, sure you're accelerating your growth and i think some people are very nervous about especially the tech degree because they think that they're not going to get hired but one example do you know bill allen so bill allen is, is here he's he's a bim guy he's actually on the keynote like his picture was up he's featured he's teaching classes here so you know he's more popular than me doing great he just has a tech degree right, and it's right, right. it's not an issue it's it, he knows what he's doing and he's providing value and that's ultimately how you want to get there and you can craft uh your path in a different way and know you know it'll, it'll be fine oh you can run lean without the overhead of a large firm get a good accountant a good tax planner understand you know what is understand all of the implications of what kind of benefits you get as being a solo you know a sole practitioner and then run lean it's great if you have a partner that is out working a full-time job where you're having health insurance and all of that comes through your partner and then you can be a little more risk-taking and entrepreneurial yeah um, and you can do extraordinary work without the stress of having to do work that you don't care about so here's what in my business we do a lot of BIM and BDC consulting for contractors we coordinate projects ahead of construction we also do very bespoke production work for very fine architects that you have never heard of that are FAIA architects. And those architects don't want to hire staff. They just want to do beautiful design and they want to maintain the customer's relationship. But there's points in their project where they go, I can't figure out this friggin' curtain wall. And I need someone to help and jump into this difficult technical thing called Revit who also understands how buildings go together so I can't hire a young person right. that's going to hurt them or I can't hire someone who's ex inexperienced so we jump in and help them with their production work and we do it from Charlotte North Carolina where the cost of living is really nice and these guys are doing extraordinary projects we jump in and help them via C4R or you know BIM 360 we yep. It's, the, yep. the files are hosted centrally so we can jump in solve problems do production fix things jump back out and they're happy. Like, they're really, really happy. So the alternative to that, if you're a young firm and you're trying to stay afloat, is you get a couple of people together, you do the first project, and while that first project is wrapping up, somebody's out looking for the next project. And as much as you try, the next project, let's uncommonly, doesn't come along. Right. The next project that you would really care about doesn't come along, but you know what? There's a warehouse project that needs to be designed. Yep. And you're looking around at three or four or five staff, and some have young families, and you're going, you know what? I, we really don't care about war warehouse projects, but I got these mouths to feed, and I feel this moral obligation to help them support their families. So you take on a warehouse. And then that same customer comes along 12 months later and says, I have another warehouse project. Okay, I don't care about warehouses, but I got this staff. After a while, you start getting defined by the kind of work that you don't care about. Yeah. And now you're stuck. So what my company is really providing is the ability f for people to engage us when they need to and then go lean so that they can wait through the tough time until they find the next project that they care about. But ultimately, what they're being 
ultimately what they're able to do is then get defined by the projects they care about and keep doing those and then do them really well. Um, I don't want to say it's Uber for architects because I think those kinds of metaphors are overused, but the kind of the kind of collaboration that I think happens in the design space for things that are not buildings, such as major motion pictures where teams come together, they collaborate, they put the thing together, and then the team breaks up again until the next project comes along. That's coming to architecture. So if you can find those teams of people, and you might work with an architect that's designing projects on the West Coast, your team is on the East Coast, you've got a great interiors designer in Mid-Atlantic, and you guys all meet a couple of times a year just to kind of see each other and have coffee and catch up. But the rest of the time, you're jumping in at a distance and working really effectively. You guys can build businesses that way that don't require the overhead uh, and the financial burdens of having a, you know, a physical office for all these people and, and all of the overhead challenges with that. And you just work with each other as, as contractors, as consultants. Yep. And you can not, not only apply that to BIM sharing and Revit production, but when we were, when I was young, starting my firm with Lance, mm. uh, we had to find an older mentor. And he just happened to be older, but a knowledgeable mentor yeah. is what I should say. And it was just through networking events. Now there's a, a lot of places you can go, like the Entree Architect, you know, Facebook group. And people are willing. And as I grow, too, I'm more willing when people contact me to, to help out because it's about collaboration and the pattern that you're talking about about people coming together and going apart is is happening um so i would just encourage people don't don't be shy to reach out when acknowledge when you maybe need some help in some areas and just know that it's out there and that you can you can go and get yeah i think you know back to the architectural school um i think we've, we've hit a wall at the university level in the architectural space um they're really I don't know if it's an arrogant decision or if they've just fallen into a trap, but it's like the senior management, who we call professors and, and the sort of leadership at architecture schools, are convinced that it's better for them to train people to think for five years but not train them to solve problems that requires understanding how your tools work. Like that's, a below, that's below them to teach people how to solve problems yeah. with tools. Um, and actually, this happened at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I was really passionate about Revit, even you know, prior to the acquisition and, and going around. I got really fortunate going around the world training companies. And I would go back and talk to the dean at that time and say, there's this tool called Revit that really helps you understand your design early on. And if you're careless, you'll get an ugly building quickly. But if you're careful, you can control the symphony of information as one person really elegantly um, and the response was, well, you know, we really don't want to teach people how to use applications. We want to use them. We want to teach people to think. And I think that's a real, that's an extraordinary misservice because teaching someone to use a tool, whether it's a hammer, whether it's a shovel, whether it's a computer mouse, if you know how to use that tool properly, you can solve problems. Like even... It's, it, it will be like a literature department saying, well, we don't, we don't want people to use Microsoft Word because that makes writing easy. Microsoft yeah. Word doesn't make writing easy. It might make moving around ideas elegant and you've got spell check, but if you have sucky plot and or if you have terrible plot convention and terrible rising action and terrible, you know, the whole, uh, the whole milieu of how you create story and how you tell the story and the rising action and then the expanse of the rising action and all of... 
you're, you're trying to tell a story with your design. And if you can't tell a story with your tools, you can't communicate to the customer, and then you can't solve problems. So the schools that are having students still work in, I think, romantic traditional ways. I'm not disparaging the pencil. I'm saying spending hours and hours over a weekend building cardboard models that ultimately don't help them understand, communicate, and solve problems. I just saw it this past week at another architecture school that I went to lecture at. And I'm thinking, you guys are going to school for five years and you're borrowing 20 grand a year and you're coming out with $100,000 in debt and then you can't buy a house and then you can't have a life and yep. you can't just pack up and decide, I'd like to work for a firm on the other side of the world because you've got a bill to pay right now. And in the, in the realm of stu- student debt in North America, you can never get out of that debt. It is, you can't declare bankruptcy against it or anything. So once you borrow that money, you are stuck. And um, the schools are not teaching people to learn how to use tools. They're teaching them about 3D printing, and they're teaching them about laser cutting, and they're teaching them a bit of how to do Revit and that sort of thing. But overall, it's a lot of philosophy and not a lot of problem-solving and I understand why so many students don't have patience for it because they get in there and they think this is the only way to go through it. And then they just get so burnt out by third, fourth, fifth year. Yep. And then when they graduate, they're competing with people to make 30 grand a year. Yeah. And if you do the math, like 30 grand a year is 15 bucks an hour. And you can make 15 bucks an hour doing lots of other more interesting things with more interesting people than architecture. Or if you took the money that you were going to borrow to go to school and went to technical school and took the money left over from not going to college and invested that in technology stocks, you're way ahead of yourself, like yeah. way ahead of yourself. So, you know, it's, it's, um, the schools are doing a disservice in the U.S. that are teaching philosophy of architecture but not how to use tools to solve problems. I, I think it's a great point, and I think it's been echoed a lot by the business community. I just don't know why the universities aren't hearing it and maybe it's an inability to change because it threatens their job because they don't know that tool and they don't want to learn that tool um but it's look there's lots of reasons why they don't have to change they've been successful it's hard to say you're successful doing it there's guaranteed student loans you can keep borrowing money borrowing money and uh, why should they change their process of working there's no reason to do it um i would just I would encourage people if they're young right now and they're, you know, juniors, seniors in high school and they're thinking about architecture school, forget it. Go to technical college, learn how to use Revit, learn how to use all of these applications, like become a, in the terms of software languages, become uh, multilingual, like learn how to use a pencil because a pencil. So here's the thing with software. People go, oh, you know, it's the pencil versus SketchUp versus Revit. A pencil is a really easy tool to use. It's got a it's got a delete button on one end and it's <laughs> yeah. kind of got an add button on the other end. But use a pencil incorrectly and you will cost the customer and the time and the project enormous sums of money. So using a pencil is hard. Use it to communicate well. If you have to use SketchUp, if you have to use Revit, whatever tools you're using, learn to master the tools, learn to memorize, then learn to strategize, then learn to improvise. Don't be afraid to copy. Um, and if you learn to play a musical instrument, you will run scales. You will learn other people's music. You don't go to music school to learn how to compose on day one. In architecture school, you go there and they teach you to compose on day one. And you don't know shit about composition. Learn to run your scales. Learn your music theory, but also learn to play music. And eventually, you'll take that memorization and you'll start to move into 
a, a sort of strategy of how to manipulate those scales and to make them more interesting. But ultimately, you go from that into this improvisational jazz where you understand how your tools work and you're thinking ahead to the next measure. You're not even looking at the sheet music. You kind of glance at the sheet music and you know where the chord changes are coming. Learn to use your tools like that. And when your customer is saying, this is a, like you could make a sketch, but in your mind, you know how you're going to build that in the computer in order to validate it, test it, analyze it, build it. And you're just starting with a sketch and it looks easy to your customer. The schools aren't teaching people to do that. It's this five-year, drawn-out, debt-inducing process to become an architect, but really it's a trap. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about what you do at uh, Reed Thomas. But you're also here with Enscape, yep. which is a tool. Sure. Why are you here with Enscape? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Backstore and Enscape is my business partner said, you should see this amazing rendering software. It renders Revit side by side in real time. And I was toying around. I, I didn't draw in architecture school all the time. Uh, I was working full time, and I played a lot of Unreal Tournament to de-stress. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out going from Revit to the Unreal Engine in 2000, Nine, you know, nine, nine, 2000, 2001 was really tough. There's a lot of undercover workflow. So fast forward to 2015, and my business partner told me about this technology that apparently just renders Revit side by side. And I thought, well, okay, I've seen a lot of interesting technologies. I got online, looked at it, and was blown away. Not with the end product, because the rendering wasn't amazing. Well, there's lots of other ways to render that look beautiful and emotional right. amazing. Yep. You can um, learn them in architecture school. Yeah. So I saw this tool, and then I did a couple of web searches about it and uh, saw a post by Brian Mackey that said, I think the headline was, Take My Money Now. Have you guys seen Enscape? Okay. So Brian Mackey is a really good canary in the coal mine. He's a very strategic kind of critical thinker. So then I dug a bit about, dug online about the Enscape team and went, wait a minute, none of these guys are architects. None of them understand workflow. I bet you none of them even understand how to use Revit. And here they've made a tool for Revit. So I reached out to the Enscape team and said, you've made a beautiful tool. It's fast. It's easy to use. It's not expensive. And you can't afford to sell it. And my pitch to the CEO of Enscape was, let us partner. I know all the customers that you need to reach. And you won't have to hire one salesperson. Because I, I can help you go to market. I've done this before. I understand the customer's use case. And I understand... Uh, the workflow challenges, and even though Enscape is easy to use, Revit has its idiosyncrasies, and the customers are going to have questions about Revit. Okay, I know the customers. Uh, I trained them to use Revit 15 years ago. Uh, I can make strategic introductions. I know who to kind of get the software to, follow up, support. So there's not a team in Germany that has to answer emails that they don't know how to answer because people are asking Revit questions. So we started this partnership. In the meantime, I showed Enscape to my 14-year-old. He was at the time. Now he's 16. And uh, had a project open. I was playing around with Enscape and quite happy with how things were going. It looked beautiful. So I said, hey, Jasper, what do you think about Enscape? And he goes, well, let me see. So I showed it to him. And he goes, well, it looks okay, I guess. Like, meh. And I was <laughs> like, well, <laughs> Kids yeah, are brutal. Not, I know. And I was like, I think I'm so cool. <laughs> like, what do you mean? This is amazing. And he goes, well, I mean, it's okay, I guess. And I said, wait a minute. This is way better than rendering. And he said, what's rendering? And then it dawned on me, 
He's grown up with Minecraft. He's grown oh, up yeah. with 3D. He's grown up with SketchUp. You know, rendering is just what you see all the time when yeah. you play on your DS. That's He's a like, rendering. What's the big deal? You hit an F9 button and you and you wait, yeah, and well, then you bring it into Photoshop. Right, right. So I write Control Tab or whatever back to Revit, and I go, okay, this is what rendering is. So I open up the rendering dialog, and I go to, like, medium level of detail for the same scene that I was looking at and walking around Enscape, and I push the render button. And it says, estimating time remaining. And after five seconds, he went, this sucks. Why would anyone do it? (laughs) (laughs) I said, this is what rendering is. And he was like, oh, my God. This Enscape is amazing because you're moving things around and they're updating. And with that, I thought, okay, if that 14-year-old can understand why this is amazing, that's my edge condition to know that a senior executive at an architecture firm will go I don't understand why this is amazing what's rendering I don't know what rendering is and I can go wait this is what you do now this is the, the future future the present future and so it's been a great partnership so I go around the world we're a strategic I, I, I would refer to us as a go to market partner with Enscape um, we go around the world and, I'll, and I have we have road shows with Revit user groups we'll do presentations uh, private presentations with firms because they don't want to ask questions in front of their, you know, competition. So you do some presentations that are private. You do some Revit user groups or, or public presentations and um, make strategic introductions, uh, strategically support customers because their questions nine times out of ten or more are about Revit or SketchUp or about workflow or here's this problem. It's not about Enscape crashing. Right. And they need someone who understands the workflow, the tools, can solve a problem. They can t- They can be formal and polite to a C-level executive at a large firm and help them understand the value proposition of not just rendering quickly, but actually making rendering obsolete and just being able to communicate your design in an emotional way. Uh, And I can also talk to the technical guy who just wants to solve a problem, and I can also talk to the IT department who's freaking out that people are asking for gaming cards in their workstations. (laughs) Like, We don't buy gaming cards at our large, expensive firm. Why are you buying gaming cards? And you explain to them because this is really the best thing for your business. So I've, I've, I've just, I didn't plan this. It just happened to work out, you know, being in the right place at the right time and then saying yes. Yeah. So uh, we had a project where we used Enscape really recently. And it was, it's funny because the developer is doing two projects on each side of the road. So one architecture's firm's doing one side and we're doing the other side. And they consolidated the civil engineer basically because I recommended it to solve this. There was a road issue, right? Then they consolidated the structural engineer to do both buildings. And where my head goes next is, oh, they're going to consolidate the architecture. And the other firm is a bigger firm. So I'm a little nervous at this point that I will be kicked out of a very big commission. Right, right. right. So so we're bringing three designs to them and (coughs) showing them uh, in Revit first and then in Enscape. And they're just straight-faced. And this developer, I've known him for a long time. Like, he, he has ripped me apart a couple of times. Like, this is terrible. You know, this is what I... <laughs> and, and so, actually, my, my employees were kind of presenting and, and running the show. And I'm watching him. And I'm thinking, man, he's straight-faced. We're going to get ripped apart here. And I thought the design was good. But, you know, other people have different ideas of sure. what design sure, sure, is. Sure. And I, I actually thought one of the designs was really, really good. And about 10 minutes into it... <coughs> Uh, one of the guys uh, at the development firm says, oh, this is way better than anything blank that other architecture firm <laughs> has brought. And right there I knew, okay, we are safe. And not only, I do think it was designed, <laughs> but great. having the ability to show them in Enscape 
as long as other firms aren't catching up and your job is to let other firms catch up and I'm all for, you know, people catching up, but we are destroying the competition yeah. with Enscape. Yeah. I'll go a step further in saying it's not Enscape. It's how you think. Okay, in architecture school, they teach you that design starts with a sketch. And I would strongly disagree. Design starts in a spreadsheet. Now, I'll use a metaphor. You mean real design in the real, real world? Real design in the real world starts on a spreadsheet. You have to yes. figure out do the numbers work. Yeah. And then the, once the numbers kind of look like they might work, give me a sketch at 30,000 feet that kind of figures out do we have enough impervious area? Do we have enough parking? Uh, parking? Do we have the building? What mass up the building? Do we re- meet zoning requirements for height? Like it's this 30,000 kind of massing study, but it starts in a spreadsheet. Okay. In the music world, you have something called sheet music. And the corollary to sheet music, because Pete and I, everybody reads sheet music, is the composition. It's a symphony. You can't keep showing your customer sheet music if they don't play an instrument. You have to eventually play the composition for them. And when they hear it, they'll know if they like it. But you have to go through this iterative process. In the world of design, you have a spreadsheet. And you have plans and sections and elevations and schedules. But the emotional, the emotional moment is when the customer sees and is able to understand and explore the space and and see the building at a distance and how it masses and how it presents, like in trivial ways. How does it present from the road? They want to understand that. Um, They're stressed out. They're risking a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Developers are high in neuroticism. They have reputations to maintain. They drive nice cars. They're putting all of that at risk to trust you. And if you keep showing them sheet music and keep showing them plans and keep showing them elevations and sections, and what they want to do is hear the composition, which means show me this thing that I can walk around and experience and have an emotional response to, that's not just about Enscape. That's about giving your customer a polite experience. And if you give your customer a polite experience, you're ultimately reducing their stress and they will continue to work with you. Yep. And so I've had people say, well, I would never use Enscape because my developer will know how easy it is to render. It's not easy to render. You have to do this extraordinary amount of thinking and stressful design work in order to get to point to do a beautiful rendering. What you're doing is giving your customer a polite experience. Now, you can render it and wait, and information can be detached by days or weeks if you've done animations. Or you can have your design live, and you can open up Enscape, and you can still show them plans and sections and dimensions and elevations and show them that rational spreadsheet and then side by side to that show them an emotionally beautifully lit space that helps them understand how they're risking their money and how that risk is going to be beautiful and how it's going to pay off and you will relieve their stress but ultimately what you're doing is they're saying oh this is way better than this other firm and you guys are using Enscape it's not about you guys using Enscape all this technology that we're happy about will be different in 20 years what you're doing is as a business owner you're you're what you're doing as a business owner is you've made the decision to give your customer a polite experience and the most polite experience that you can give them is show them all of the information contextually and show them all the information simultaneously so so the impolite thing to do as an architect will be here's the plans do you like the plans? I'll get back to you next week and show you some sections. 
or elevations. Do yep. you like the elevations? Come back in a couple in a week. I'll show you some sections. Do you like that? Come back again, and I'll show you the schedules, and we'll start mocking up some perspectives. We used to do that. That was how you had to put this stuff together. If you're doing that now, you're giving your customer an impolite and stressful experience. They're not leaving you because you're not using Revit, and you can't do all of that simultaneously, or you're not using Enscape. They're just kind of fed up with being blinded, like wearing blinders to how the design is coming out and I've known I've known people to fire their architects over that to say why are you just showing me plans well once you approve the plans we'll do the elevations and once you approve the elevations we'll do the sections and start perspectives and they just get stressed out and fed up they're pouring more and more money into this and they don't know ultimately what they want to see is what they can experience they want to have that first person experience so Mark my words, you know, Enscape or this kind of technology will evolve dramatically in the next decade. But if you continue to look at what's coming and figure out how to use that technology to give your customer a polite experience, you're golden. Yep. Technology is going to change. The relationship is solid. And to the point where um, what you said from someone that you heard about, the developer or the client will think that it's easy to render. What we did we didn't have everything modeled because this was preliminary we sure. had the outside and we were flying around in one half of the building the back side and 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 the other side was kind of just half modeled right and you've you've seen models so we are flying through the building and then they see that and they go oh what's there we go we didn't model that part yet okay and, and it's telling them what you haven't done yet and they are okay with it yep. and i actually think it's beneficial because they see the difference between like just a skeleton bone and then yeah, on the yeah. other side yep. you know work and no, they I, realize because they've they've developed projects before, I've, I've had people uh, take offense or reject the idea of you can see Enscape because oh if we have to use Enscape we have to apply all these materials and figure out all the lights to make it beautiful and it's not true all you're trying to do is give your customer enough information so that they can make a decision and then go on to the next thing yeah. and you don't have to actually to show them everything quote unquote beautifully and completely resolved is really stressful because in their minds they're thinking you have to back up to start again to go in the direction they want you to head yep um so give them enough information to help them make an intelligent decision so that you're not wasting their time you're not wasting your time and money and then confidently kind of keep going in the next direction i look at it like a hurricane you know when the hurricane is uh kind of boiling off the east coast and uh they're getting everybody excited from Key West to Pennsylvania because this hurricane is coming. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, you don't have to go and start boarding up your house two weeks out. You go, okay, it's two weeks out. We're kind of in the path. What are we trying to do? And then once you know a little bit more information, then you do a little bit more things. You don't want to be the last minute trying to evacuate, you know, uh, as the hurricane is on top of you. But if that if you're in that sort of cone of vision of well where things where things might go, just give your customer enough information to help them make a decision, and don't go too far beyond that. Just give them some intent. And what you're describing is we haven't figured everything out. The other thing is don't impose, don't ever surprise your customer, and that actually goes for CEOs. Don't ever surprise someone. Take them along, help them understand your process, give them a memorable experience. Right. If the customer's coming in, you're going, okay, here's all our drawings. Here's your Enscape model. Everything looks pretty good. What do you think? That's not a memorable experience. You're just imposing it on them. Look at a presentation by Steve Jobs or Tim Cook at Apple. You think you helped them design the iPhone. 
by the time that state key, you know that that uh, that keynote is over. You think that they took the ideas in your head? And yeah, it somehow, was actually your idea. It was your idea. You thought this was amazing, and they've already made it for you. Now I just have to stand in line to buy it. Take your customer along for the journey. Help them understand that you're trying to figure stuff out too. Because the stressful thing is, you'll put your, you get all this information and you lay it out in front of your customer, and they'll start asking things like, "Well, why is the stair core there? Why is it, why is the elevator core over here? Uh, why is the entry over here?" And then you have to dial back and explain to them all of this thought process. That if you just take them along the journey, they would understand as a product of function. That's why this is here, and that's why this other thing is over here, and that's why the building is oriented this way, because they helped you actually do that thing. They understand why it's a good decision. Um, now, of course, all, all, all not all developers or all customers want to go along for that journey. Sometimes it might be a little more transactional, and it depends on oh, if absolutely, it's, a it's context, or a, you know, yeah. But if you're you know uh, where people live is usually more kind of personal than where they work and where they work is more important than where they shop so if you're designing a home for someone it could be a highly contentious kind of relationship but if you go through the process of saying you know well how do you think what do you like uh, you're designing a set for like a, a movie at that point it's almost it's a very scenic process take them through that process they'll get an appreciation for how hard it is they'll get an appreciation for yeah there's a thousand ideas but whether it's it's the constraints of reality, it's time, it's budget, it's materials, it's procurement, is is the contractor going to be available at this time in three months when we start want to site grubbing and getting things ready to go? There's just a lot of dynamics, and if you take them along at a polite level, they'll back out when they're no longer available to go on this journey and say, "Well, I'm busy. I trust you now." Yeah. But at least get them to the point where they trust you. Yeah. And if you explain that process to them when they're giving you feedback. You can adjust your process because there's going to be a million decisions to make when you're doing a building. Yeah. And then you can talk and interpret interpret on process, not, oh, they told me to move that here. If you have no context for that, you just move that here, but then what's the you next move? You don't know move? why. Yeah, the yeah. next move, you're going to have to go back, and you moved it here, but they said move it here. Yeah. If you... You're Always telling your customer... You're giving your customer a story. You're taking them on this journey. What's the best way to tell your customer a story? What's the best way to get a story? What's the best way to absorb a story. There's music, there's theater, there's novella, books. novel, books, there's film. There's films. Yep. All of those are valid story-making tools. But if your customer feels more comfortable reading a book and absorbing the story that way, then you don't keep showing the movies. Like, you have to figure out how the customer really wants to communicate, really wants to think, and really wants to absorb. This is a stressful process. They may think they want it a certain way, and you start in that direction, and when they start visualizing it, they realize this is not really what I like. This is not what I feel calm and comfortable with. This is not going to accomplish a, a business constraint. Why not show that? Why not get them in that direction, like right at the beginning of the project, instead of heading down the road, doing all of these detached design tasks, doing all of these unrecoverable renderings, and then showing this all of this workflow and them not liking it and then realizing, oh, geez, i got to send them a bill for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't imagine. Uh. So here's the irony. I sell support, train people to use Enscape around the world, and overwhelmingly the reason they buy it is so they can render faster. Like, because you can render a 4K image in 10 seconds mm -hmm. and you can print it in another half a minute. 
So depending wow, on your printer. Right, depending <laughs> on your printer. <laughs> your relationship yeah, yeah. with your printer okay. and if it likes you that day. So imagine this. People buy Enscape because it will help them render faster. Because dozens of renderings can be rendered not in hours or days, but in seconds. Like, I could on my laptop with a gaming card... I could probably render 2K images, which are sufficient for PowerPoint and telling a story. 2K images render in about five seconds, so I can render a dozen images in a minute. That's why they buy it initially, and then they find out they don't render anymore. They just open it up, and they walk around their project. They might set some views up where you know they'll keyframe some views so they right. can tell the stories from, from outside to inside to walking through to tell the story. They buy it to render, and then they find out rendering is obsolete. That's interesting. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that that was just like <laughs> You're kind of staring up in the sky like in my head. <laughs> because yeah. I, I interview and in, in, uh, not just on the podcast, but, you know, people to be employed. And some people are coming from different organizations, even outside the AEC industry. And what I find is they're hesitant to take the, the jump to the next tool. And you don't always have to be on the bleeding, cutting edge. But some of the, and what we hear, especially let's, for example, someone that's going from AutoCAD to Revit. And they'll say, oh, I don't want to because can Revit do this, this, and this? And sometimes it's hard to explain. You no longer need to do that. Right, right, that right. That no yeah, longer needs to We're not trying to, to speed exist. up a process that's busted. We're trying to make that process obsolete. Yeah. So Peace the same thing. And I think yeah. people also... They get stuck into a tool and think, well, this tool doesn't do what that tool was. Um, it's really not about the tool. If you can't use Revit well, don't use it well. Hire people that use it well. Communicate the way that's comfortable. You know, I, I, I have those religious conversations with people going, we're trying to get rid of SketchUp in our firm. Tell our, you know, when you're training today, tell them they don't need SketchUp anymore. <laughs> I'm like, let them use whatever tool helps communicate a polite experience to the customer. And if early on it's a pencil, because pencils are gestural, pencils help you discover the thing that you're trying to design. And then you get into SketchUp, and that design process is really messy. Right. And maybe I don't want to have a messy Revit model when I'm done. Maybe I want to figure out 10 things, and when one starts to settle down and calcify, I might even start again in confidence in Revit, knowing that I'm headed in the right direction. Um, if you've, I, like mus I like musical metaphors, because I really want to be a musician. Yeah. Um, if you've ever started to play an instrument, you spend a lot of time staring at your fingers on that fretboard of that, of, of that guitar, and your fingers are not attached to your body. Like, it feels like it's this detached hand that your brain is somehow unable to control. And so you're having this really weird experience where you're trying to make, like, you're making these patterns to, to learn your chords on the guitar, but you're staring at your hands all the time, and you're like, my hands don't work, what's going on? And after a while, you stop staring at your hands. Like, you don't stare at your hands to make the chord changes anymore. And after a while, you still have to stare at them to move up and down the fretboard so that you're at the right spot. But then after a while, you even stop looking down at the fretboard. And look at the masters. Look at a guy like Keith Richards. That guy's not looking at his fretboard at all. He's looking at the audience. He's reading their nonverbal. He's smiling. He's communicating with them. His hands are doing something, and he's got so much muscle memory, he's not even looking at his fingers. It's the same process with learning to use your tools. You want to get to a point where your mind is able to think ahead 
and not even look at the fretboard. So when you learn to use Revit, it's really hard at the beginning because all of that muscle memory of where is that command in AutoCAD and where's that keyboard shortcut and I can't just do it quick and easy right. like that. You're constantly looking up at the menu and nothing feels like it's in the right place at the beginning. Yeah, you gotta get over that. But the more important thing is you have to maintain a relationship to the customer. So if you're not good at doing that, but you understand how buildings go together, how relationships go together, how projects go together, that's your strength. Go find somebody who can use Revit. Revit's a commodity. Find someone who can use it well, who's also polite, who you can also take to a meeting with a customer, uh, and they can, you know, they can just simple things like learn to hold your fork and knife correctly at dinner and cut your food and, and let's like eat politely and drink politely. Find someone who can use use find someone who can use Revit well that you can also bring to a meeting so that while the customer's having a business discussion, this other person's listening to the technical side of things and going, we're fine, Revit can handle all of this, we, you know, we can put it together, the workflow's not an issue. You don't have to learn how to use Revit. You have to work with a team if you're gonna be successful, so learn how to work with a team. Yep. Yep. Um, Two-part question. What, either at your firm or um, Enscape, yep. anything that you dabble in, what are you really excited about what you're currently doing and mm. the second part to that is what are you excited about that you might do and this might not even be a formal plan but something that's twirling around in the back yeah, of your yeah, head yeah. so the thing that we're really excited about doing that five ten years ago i wouldn't have known was coming is there is an enormous ecosystem of interesting technologies that's kind of coming coming of age because of this thing called bim uh, in a lot of cases the specific thing is the revit so the Revit has created this enormous ecosystem of cottage industries and developers trying to solve really interesting just-in-time problems. And they solve this really interesting problem, and then they wait for the world to be the path to the door, and there's crickets. Yeah, yep, there's nothing. <laughs> and uh, so we get a phone call, or we get an email going, you know what, you guys are helping this team called Enscape, and they're really doing pretty good. Uh, do you reckon you could look at what we're working on? We'd like you to help us. And if you're a, if you're a young development team, now you don't have to... T I mean, the problems that we're trying to solve in AAC are not going to get the attention of Silicon Valley. Uh, a company like Autodesk might invest, but they won't give you help, and they might even compete against you. Um, my company will spend an enormous amount of unrecoverable effort over three years to hopefully return on that investment of taking you to market. And I, I think the opportunity is not just to anticipate that this kind of thing will happen, but actually to facilitate it happening. These companies, once they're really smart young people, they make really elegant solutions. Sometimes they're overly biased because it's their beautiful baby, but they've made this really beautiful solution and then they realize the world's not beat a path to our door. Uh, we go to a conference like AU and everybody's happy and excited and they say they want a demo and they say they want a trial and they say they want to buy it and then we get back to their office and it's not and it's January and they're still not like answering my emails and I'm sending them the trials and how's it going and it's, and it's crickets. So they find out, you know, they have this kind of come to Jesus moment where they realize the world doesn't beat a path to your door. You've created a beautiful tool, but you don't know who to strategically introduce it to. You may not know how to market, how to tell a story properly to the right stakeholder because the C-level executive needs to understand the value proposition differently than the technical Revit user on the floor. 
Um, the project manager needs to hear it in different ways as well. Not not in different ways as in telling the truth or, or stretching the truth, but they need to understand, you know, the C-level executive wants to understand the ROI, and for them it's money, but for the person on the floor, they just want to have dinner with their friends and their families at night. Like, they don't want to be at the office till 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So you have to understand what is meaningful to them to appeal properly. And then once they start to get traction, how do you politely write a compelling success story? So you got it's not just about creating the tool. You've got you got sales and business development and marketing and support, um, leveraging customer successes, successes, knowing who to go to to make the next introduction. I just happen to have, in, in the terms of Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, he calls yep. this a talent stack. My background, I went to seminary to study communications and literature. I learned how film editing works. I learned how radio editing works and television editing. So I know how to do that. I know how to write well. So I can do kind of marketing things, and I can write, and I can polish those pieces. I can make videos. I also happen to have a background in, so with the literature and the philosophy background, it helps me understand big picture stories of how humans think and how we have thought. So I kind of approach things philosophically and go, how am I going to express this story? What are the sort of metaphors that I want to use? I mean, that's an abstract way of saying it, but I've just, I, I just that's how I tend to approach things. Um, I understand deeply how the technical tools work, and I understand workflow of design because I've been to architecture school. And I also understand the stresses of being in the real world and how to appeal to, would you like to keep doing it the old and busted way, or would you like to do it this really new and interesting way? So with that talent stack, I think the interesting and really excited thing that we are focused on, absolutely, it's BIM and VDC Consulting. That is the present. But the future is... There are companies I've never heard about about making beautiful technology right now that they will struggle to take to market. And if they partner with Reed Thomas, we will help them go to market and be multiples more successful than they would have been just struggling on their own. And we won't build a parasitic relationship. We're not going to loan them money and then ask them for ROI and figure it out and ruin them financially. Um, we're not just a business advisor that will talk to them and charge them consulting. We are going to get on the road with them, go to the right customers, be accountable to those customers, and help them go to market as if we were working for them full-time, but they could not afford for us to work for them full-time. So that's the, I think that's the exciting new future because anyone can come along and, well, not anyone. People can come along now and say, I'm a BIM manager. That's, a, that's becoming a commodity. I mean, just look up the word BIM manager on LinkedIn. And you see people with one, you know, six years, six months experience hauling themselves, <laughs> yep. Revit gurus. Yeah. Um, but look on LinkedIn and try to find people who have this kind of talent stack that wasn't planned. I didn't plan this. I'm just in a really good place that can help your company go to market and be successful beyond what you imagined. So that's what we do. And that's what we're really excited about. Yeah, very exciting. Reed Thomas Ventures. Yeah. We had to give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anything you want to leave people with, and then how can they get a hold of you? Um, just look me up on LinkedIn, yep. Phil Reed, R-E-A-D. Um, the Phil Reed, I've uh, been told. Yeah, ask, talk to my teenagers. They just go, uh, and they roll their eyes, which <laughs> like, yeah, as, right. it, as it should be. Um, what to leave you with? I'll tell you a true story. Uh, probably would have happened in the last year. I'm trying to set up a demo with a company for Enscape. Last minute, the guy cancels. Okay, happens sometimes. Try it. Sure. You, you don't want it to happen. You know, you try to keep your schedule open, but you try to be flexible. That's no problem. Let's try to do it next week. Um, 
last minute guy cancels again. Whoa. Okay, my time's busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my time's precious. You get arrogant. You think I'm really important. Why, you know, everybody, you just want people I'm to follow. Reed. No, no, no. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you're flying, you're traveling, you're jet lagged. Yeah. I just want this thing to get done so I can kind of tick it off. That's okay. The third time. And we're starting to meet the third time in like half an hour, an hour before the meeting, he cancels again. And at that point, like, I'm a really easygoing person, but when I get to 99%, I just get really impatient. I get really grumpy. And my first thought was just to send off this nasty gram and go, look, we're both professionals. This is unprofessional. I'm keeping my time open, and I really don't appreciate this. I didn't even write it down. I just kind of stepped back because of life experiences and go, you know what? You don't know what people are going through. Wrote the guy an email and said, hey, I don't know what's going on. You had to cancel a couple times. Obviously, there's, there's things cropping up. Uh, let me know if I can help, but don't worry about it. We'll schedule for next week. And just kind of sent that off into Ether. I get an email back. Hey, Phil, uh, really appreciate this. Uh, we're picking up my daughter today uh, from University Medical Hospital name. Uh, she's been undergoing leukemia treatment. And, you know, the weight of the world is on his shoulders. Contractors must be calling. You know, he, he knows that the firm has probably said, hey, go ahead and take some time, get this off. And then to have one voice say, I don't, don't you, you worry must about be dealing it. with something. Something's going on. I don't yeah. know what it is. We'll figure it out. And to get a, a, an incredibly kind thank you note back from someone who's going through an incredibly stressful moment in their life, um, I would just say to people, and particularly because of where we are in terms of history with politics and religion and social media and all of this, it's really easy to get angry and say things well, with regard to social media, it's really easy to get angry and say things in public that we would never say in private. You would never sit down at dinner with a friend and put a turd on the table, no. you know, and, and say something really acerbic and really spiteful. But we do it. It's easy to do it on social media because you just kind of get it out there. I would say just dial it back. Yeah. You don't know what people are going through. Yep. If somebody gets angry, you know what? You don't know what they're going through. What, what, what all? And so just drop back. And, and I'm the first one to suffer from not being patient. I'm not a patient person at times. I, I hit the wall. But just life experiences, you know, coming from somebody who's just turned 53, yeah. is like just drop back, try to imagine that that person is having their worst day imaginable, and just give them a little bit of slack. And be kind to people. Like, just be kind. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to leave it. Thanks, yeah. thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Phil Reed. Now let's go straight into my conversation with Clifton Harness. All right, I'm here at Autodesk U with Clifton Harris. How's it going, man? Harness. Harness. <laughs> <laughs> you want to start over? No, not at all. <laughs> okay. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, actually, tell me what, what your product is. What did you make? Because I'm really intrigued with it. Sure. Uh, uh, so keep it close. Microphone close. Yeah. So my co-founder and I built a tool that designs buildings in milliseconds, um, specifically to assist architects and real estate developers, uh, either in killing real estate deals, turning real estate deals into projects, uh, generating design options, and then with the final uh, result of optimizing buildings. Uh, so we started with multifamily, um, and that's going pretty well for us uh, as a startup in the AEC space. 
So essentially, if I can describe it, because I've, I've seen test demonstrations, I've even downloaded it, is that you have a site, uh, you sketch that in in AutoCAD or on there, and then essentially you can make parameters for unit types. And also parking came out too. So then you can say, you can actually go for the max density of, of what you can do, and you can have corner units and things like that. Um, right. Would that be a fair way of kind of describing? Yeah, uh, so at last check, we're up to like 115 parameters, um, which for people that work in generative design, that's an obscene number. Um, what are some of those parameters? <laughs> name every single one. I, there's no way I can name every single one. Uh, I think, let's see, what's my favorite one? So we, we have a parameter that's hidden called door spacing. Yeah. Uh, that users actually can't touch. And it simply just makes the required area for doors on a corridor either larger or smaller. So what you're really concerned with is outside corner units have a really small uh, corridor space. And so we just wanted to assure that there would always at least be, I think it's set to six feet. There's always at least six feet of corridor. So is this kind of secretly useful? Because I know one of the parameters or something that you can control is your distance from an exit, from yeah. uh, some sort of stairs. So hidden inside the unit, or is it visible where your door is, or does it just take in location where that door is? It, yeah. It, um, so the way that our, uh, call it compliance, like code compliance algorithm, uh, that's looking at the distance between staircases uh, and the distances between uh, any unit and that staircase. Uh, it just tries to confirm that the entire unit is within that dimension. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, from a test fit standpoint, uh, we're the first thing that's done. Literally wanna, the name of. Yeah, the name of the company is Testfit, but our product's name is Testfit. It's confusing. And, and, and people call this thing that we do test fitting. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of another example. Like, oh, there's the obvious name for it right there. It's yeah, perfect. I don't, I don't know of a better name, and we we went through so many names. Uh, we started out being residential engine. Which, oh yeah, it's too much. Oh, it's it's horrible. Yeah. The way it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, as a product, far too many syllables. And it's it's testfit.io. Dot io, right? Right. What uh, what is that? I think that's like a marketing gimmick to get people to type it into their web browser. Instead of what what does the dot io mean? So io is on off. Uh, it's just the way that startups, you know, ones and zeros, right? Yeah, Blue mind blown, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't know that was a thing. I yeah, thought it's it, a thing. Now now you will know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know other companies that, or is it more prevalent than I am aware? Uh, I mean. The last giant uh, startup, I think, that was a bust was Flux.io. Um, so they're another kind of startup. They've since morphed into Helix.re, which stands for real estate. So hmm. all these upper-level domain names are, you know, hard to come by now. Yeah. Uh, so I think there is a testfit.com, but it looks like it's a failed startup that is still paying for hosting, evidently. Did you offer to buy it from them? I couldn't find a contact information for them. Really? And then I found like a, I found like a, a link broker, and she said it would cost like fifty grand to do it. Uh, and I, I was, I was. You I was said like, no. I was like, yeah, I was, 
we'll just be .io, whatever. It's not it's not worth fifty grand to be a .com. Yeah. I like it because it's unique, you know, because I always notice that if I'm telling someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's it'll be easier for us to get a trademark. I mean, we're already in the middle of filing all that uh, to get a full name trademark. Can't yep. get a trademark for TestFit because it's already a, it's like a tissue paper. You can't get a, a trademark for tissue paper, but you could for Kleenex. Because the name is, like you said, the action. You are test fitting something. Yeah. So they're like. It's, it's already a publicly known definition, so you can't claim that it's yours. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I, why I like your product and why I think so many people probably do is because I always have developers say, hey, look at this site. Tell me what you can do with it. Yeah. And they, they always think it's simple. They always think like, oh, that'll take you. You know, I've convinced them sometimes two, you know, two to four hours of, of, of my time, which is still being extremely generous right. because it literally takes a day, a day and a half. Right. And that's a day and a day and a half of me doing like one or two different studies. Yeah. So yours is not like that. <laughs> yours so, is different. So it's really it's really funny. Um, you know, now that I'm in the startup world trying to sell a product and I'm not being a designer or being a real estate developer, um, I ask architects, okay, do do you get paid for the test bits that you do? And they always say, yeah, we totally get paid for those test bits that we do. Uh, and then I go talk to real estate developers because we we sell the product to both groups. Yeah. Uh, they say, oh, well, we never pay for test fits, so someone's lying. I don't know who it is. Um, but uh, long story short, in this space, we spend a lot of time working on buildings that don't ever get realized. Yeah. Um, and that's the that's the specific pain is the seventy five percent of site plans that are basically thrown away. Yeah. Um, have you reached out to developers in general? But I don't know if what what's been your feedback from them. Yeah. Um, or they so like make the architects do it. Is that <laughs> what they say? <laughs> it really depends on who the developer is. Um, if it's somebody that has a um, maybe a background in civil engineering, a lot of developers are actually getting backgrounds in architecture now um, because they're finding that. Well, architects, man, they actually know things about buildings, so maybe we should hire an architect to run development. That's a crazy concept <laughs> you just brought up. You know, yeah. it's it's a uh, yeah. I'm only I'm only 27, and I've been around for a couple of years uh, in the mm. call it real world. Um, but I would have thought that that's how it should have been always. Uh, <laughs> run the default. <laughs> yeah. Come to learn that uh, understanding finance is more important to developing buildings than architecture. That, yeah. That doesn't fit well or it doesn't sit well rather with me and I think a lot of people would agree. Yeah. So we're I, I told you about so we're an architecture firm and we're doing our own development and some so we're going after money, banks and yeah. you know. So that's fun. How's that's that just, going? That's a peachy experience. <laughs> <laughs> Excruciating. You, it's almost you learn, like work you learn about loan to value yet? Yeah, it's like working with the government. And <laughs> it's so funny because uh, some banks and even the city We'll look at the architecture and see, like, oh, this is, we see what you're doing. It's unique. It'll work in there, blah, yeah. blah. Other people are, just tell me the numbers. Tell yeah. me the square footage, the numbers, yeah, yeah. whatever. Give me your loan to value, loan to cost, all that. And then, and I, you know, I understand it, but it, it's, a, it's a different world, indeed. Right. So, so cities are kind of under siege, uh, I think, by development right now. Um, I think it's, yes. I think it's like half a million units are built every year. 
yep. if not more. Were, um, were you at the the main thing? That yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they were talking about Japan and. <laughs> so the guy that I was sitting next to, he's a good friend, uh, Bill Allen. He kind of leaned over. He's like, "Have they not heard of Test Fit?" <laughs> like, no, I don't think they have. They did. Maybe maybe it would be us up there. I don't know. <laughs> there was another the the app company about putting all the data together and all yeah, that. Yeah. I was like, "There's four other companies like that." There's yeah, yeah. So there's there's several approaches to development. Um, there's definitely the top-down approach, which is to you know consume public data, uh, zoning information, um, typically publicly available information. Yeah. And sifting through it and searching it to find opportunities to do development. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, that's where I think most of the venture money is right now is in doing it that way. Uh, what we've done with TestFit is we are agnostic to where you're at. Uh, so we just build tools that uh, you could plug in what your zoning is. Yep. Um, we feel like that'll be a lot more scalable, uh, especially in the United States where it's so fragmented uh, that you almost would have to kill yourself to model the entire country's zoning. No, oh, it'd be terrible. So are, is one of your parameters a... Um Floor area ratio or... Right. FAR is an output. Um, we'll tell you if you're above the allotted FAR, but okay, so you it still does have... Right. So, so, like, if you wanted to run a uh, wrap type 5, which is a lower density wrap, typically four levels, uh, maybe you want 60 units to the acre or something like that, uh, we'll just tell you if you're uh, above or below that 60 number. Perfect. Uh, how did you get into this? Uh, great question. Uh, so I grew up uh, with uh, my dad. He's a real estate developer, uh, apartments, garden apartments. Um, and uh, those dinner table discussion was uh, cash flows and, like, you know, rent growth and cap rates. So grew up in it. Uh, and then I decided that uh, I wanted to do architecture for college. Uh, so I went and got a Bachelor of Architecture from the University of Texas, Hook'em. Yeah. Uh, and... They are up and down in football. <laughs> it is. It, that is a discussion not for right now. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly happy with the day so far, so let's avoid... <laughs> that yeah. discussion. Um, yeah, so architecture is, you know, the, the spatial configuration and uh, real estate development is really the, the financial configuration. Uh, and so... With TestFit, we, we've tried to build a tool that, that uh, links both of those things together. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to work at Streetlights Residential, uh, two amazing bosses there, uh, Paige Close, who taught me how to think uh, how to, about how to break down a site uh, into its component parts. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Doug Chestnut, who was my boss, who really encouraged uh, myself and my co-founder, Ryan, uh, to pursue this software startup so uh, when did you learn to code because you're making this yourself. i don't code ryan ryan does all the coding ryan yeah. does all the yeah, coding yeah, yeah. so i just he, did, he does the coding and i claim all the credit so it's really that's great the it's way a great to go deal. Yeah, yeah so i have a business partner lance mm -hmm. and just like you guys he doesn't do anything and i do everything <laughs> <laughs> so you can tell because he's not here right now yeah yeah <laughs> the yeah. fact He's he's back he's he's back in uh, in Colorado working on CD sets or something yeah, right. He's managing the firm. He says yeah. doing the actual <laughs> yeah. work. Yeah, lies basically. Yeah, yeah. 
So I mean, if I had asked Ryan to reconcile like all of our expenses, he he would probably be like, "What even is that?" Yeah. <laughs> how how did you go? So you worked at a firm. Mm-hmm. You, did you get funding? Did how did that work? Did you live in your mom's house? <laughs> did he live in your mom's house? Yeah. <laughs> did everyone? How did we get off the ground? Yeah. Uh, we are not funded. Uh, we have no investors at at all. Yep. Um, so everything we've done is sweat equity so far. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be married. Um, my wife is a make awesome her do all the work. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 That can't say that. Um, <laughs> so she she's been extremely supportive. Um, thank you, Annalise. Uh, and then. Ryan, uh, Ryan left his job. He got, he laid himself off. It's like they're gonna have a, a round of layoffs, and he just raised his hand. Yeah, like. yeah. He basically raised his hand, and um, so he had a little bit of severance, and uh, he started coding. But he lived with one of his brothers for a long time, like rent free. Uh, so we, we've kept our expenses really low. Yep. Um, and that's enabled us to work on TestFit, um, and then to you know gain customers and. At latest count, we're we're past sixty customers. How many? Sixty. Sixty. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. How have you found? How hard has that been to get customers? Because it's honestly the program that you developed is one that's needed. And yeah. and to really emphasize that, the keynote speak, you know, speed, uh, you know, speech today, there was an em- emphasis on just laying out and literally a. A Japanese version, sort yep. of, of this. Yeah. And you don't get put on that stage as a concept <laughs> without it being something that solves an actual yeah. issue. Yeah. So how are you reaching out to people? How's that whole process? Because I'm I'm sure it's a grind. Yeah. So you know, I think for I don't know who's going to listen to this, but architects and anybody listening to this, if you're if you're looking to market yourself uh, in today's day and age, definitely use uh, social media. Uh, so the the first thing I started doing was just writing like blog posts about what it is that we were doing yep. um, and posting videos on like LinkedIn and then connecting those those videos back to our blog and it's an easy way to generate um, inbound interest yep. uh, more the harder part was uh, sitting down in a Starbucks and grinding through uh, finding a thousand contacts on the internet, just guessing email addresses of people that might be interested. Yeah. So our first our first 30 customers came from me guessing somebody's email address, sending them a... Like uh, like uh, bobsmith at hoa.com. Yeah, yeah. yeah bob.smith. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Bob. That yeah. was me. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean it's 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 grueling, and you feel uh, you feel like you're invading somebody's privacy by, and you know, unsolicited message on email. Um, I've done several hundred cold calls. Those are almost way worse because, like, your your blood starts pumping and it goes, yeah. you know, into your hands, and then now you can't feel your arms, and and then you're like, oh, please don't pick up, please don't pick. Oh, hey, yeah, uh, hi there. Um, so we we ended up getting. You know, basically, what is our operating income off of, you know, the outbound effort, yep. um, and now the growth is off of the inbound. Yeah. Um, it's funny because as a firm owner, I get emails all the time yeah. from people, and and normally, you know, I might 
try to respond to them, but sometimes you know people are busy, so you shouldn't take it hard if, if people don't respond back to you. Oh yeah, I don't I don't take it hard at all anymore. Awesome, <laughs> because sometimes I can't, and there'll be a couple that will follow up and be like, "Did you get my email?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm choosing to ignore you. I got other shit to do. <laughs> you can't just scream at someone across the street and demand a conversation." Yeah, you know, you don't want to tell yep. them that. Maybe I should tell them so, that. So, so I mean, it like you, you just have to realize you've got a very limited touch point with people. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly how we first got connected, um, but it might have been. Uh, I think like Twitter. I saw it. And on Twitter. So, okay. Yeah. So uh, your touch points are very limited. And, you know, I choose in my marketing strategy to try to try to display the product as much as I can. Yeah. Um, you're going to see a lot of videos from me. Um, I'm not going to give you a full paragraph of text about what it is that we're doing. Our product in a lot of ways means something different to yep. anybody that touches it. Yeah. Um, to an architect that uh, has done a million multifamily buildings and had to redo a unit mix, you know, our product is going to be pretty special to him because yeah. you just click a button and we resolve units. Uh, to a developer that is probably wants to get site plans done for the 99 sites that he needs test fitted but can only afford to get one test fitted it's pretty it's it's a pretty interesting uh technology for him to apply yeah uh, so it means different things for different people is it possible this is a coding question for you guys to code in where you i i could download it as an architect as a developer mm -hmm. and i only get let's just say 20 iterations and the reason why and that's all you get <laughs> Well, here's the re for free, because yeah. the reason why is I'll do five just to figure out the program. Yeah, you know, maybe ten. Yeah, and then I'll go to my developers and, and say, hey, I can do, I can guarantee you, we can max out your sites when I do it, and I can do it within an hour. Yeah, and I'll do five more like that just to drum up business. Yeah, and then I'll be cut, be caught because they'll say, okay, I have another site. Because, you know, I already have my relationships. <laughs> and they'll be like, do that test fit thing yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be like, shit, I got to buy it. Yeah. And then, I, yeah. you know, but it, it's a way of, you know, training them, you know, my, training myself yep. to use it and then training the developer to expect it. Yeah. And then then after you've already done that many and the, uh, you, I have a couple of developers on the line, then yep. it's worth it because I know they're going to keep asking me for it. Right. So, um why don't we design multifamily buildings in real time with the customer while they're with us? What well, <coughs> scheduling? Scheduling? It's hard. It's it's just hard to get on the same schedule. Yeah. Okay. Just. So I might argue that um, I think the reason why we don't really do it is because the, uh, quanti the quantity takeoff like really kills you on on time, uh, and so like it's easy to draw a party. But yeah. it's really hard to understand how much of that party exists. Uh, and so I have a customer uh, who has decided to make TestFit part of like a real-time design um, tool. So a developer, they'll get on a screen share uh, and they'll just go through a site. Um, and they'll do it in 30 minutes or something like that. Well, I think you nailed it on the head there because I said schedule because I can't schedule with a developer. I can't say I need four to eight to 12 hours of your time yeah. for me to lay this out and yeah, rev yeah. it for you. Yeah. They'd be like, no, yeah. obviously, but they could have a half hour. True. They could have a half mm -hmm. hour. So my schedule answer is right, but you solved that problem. Right. Yeah. So so right now I'm on an email chain uh, with one of uh, with a development 
customer of mine and I'm just kind of an observer and they're talking with like all of the people internally and I think we're on like email number 47 and so uh, I've test I did I did test fit once for them put it on the email chain and now they have 47 emails to try to solve the rest of the pieces of the deal when the most the most complicated part which is the spatial analytics here it is um, so I'm, I'm kind of waiting for so, them. So you did the test fit and they said, okay, this is a great project. Now we got to figure out all this other nonsense. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll do it for, you know, a paltry sum, 500 bucks. Yeah. Just because I, you know, it's a lead generation or whatever. Um, but they've got, they've got to figure out like rents. I mean, there, there's, there's a whole other level of analysis that gets done inside development shops. That I think is an architect you're not really party to, yeah. But it's really interesting standing from the sidelines and watching like what's happening. Yeah. They start talking about operating expenses and being worried about construction timing and yeah. a lot of stuff. What are you most excited about in in that program that currently exists, or maybe that's coming out in the future? You want to put into it? What am I most excited about? Oh man, it's it's a bit bizarre. Um, to have an idea in your head and then two years later to see a customer train the rest of his team on how to use that idea that was in your head two years ago. Uh, that was probably the most satisfying moment um, other than cashing our first check. Yeah. But I, the things that I'm excited about uh, moving forward are um, getting more granular and, and being able to provide some schematic design level tools uh, namely like a, a unit database um, so like a two bedroom two bath right so uh, right now TestFit just creates bounding boxes that are the right size um, yep. yep and the user can say what size they want right the user can say what size they, they can't say explicitly what the dimensions of that bounding box are so I'm pretty excited about being able to place units um, that have been explicitly defined by the user uh, and that means that uh, work that has been already done over maybe years to perfect a unit plan for a specific market, that can just be plugged right into our software. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty awesome. excited about that. I'm, I'm <laughs> excited about that, too. That sounds awesome. Well, cool. Before we wrap this up, anything else you want to shout out? No, not really. Um, anybody wants to check out TestFit, just uh, go to our website, www.testfit.io. Yeah. Um, my name is Clifton Harness. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, also don't uh, be afraid to send me an email or set up a meeting. Stuff's really easy to do. Absolutely. That's how. Um, so all, everyone that's listening, you can reach out to him. You can you know find his email on LinkedIn, and he's very responsive, um, easy to get along with. So so to reach out to him. He'll get back to you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Alex. Last but not least is my buddy, Ben Gluntz. He's going to talk about Bimsmith and his project, uh, one of his products in there, which is called Forge. All right, I'm here with Ben from Bimsmith. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. How are you liking the conference so far? I love it. It's a, it's a great time to get together with a lot of old friends and people who are actually moving the needle in the industry. Yeah. What it, what. What's your fa we're only what basically a day into it? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. 
the amount of work <laughs> feels like longer than that, yeah. especially you guys setting up. Yes, definitely. But what have you <laughs> liked so far? Um, you know, just the energy in the room is it's just electric. So I, I love I love that about the show. It's people actually want to move things forward, and uh, that's really always my favorite part. Yeah, just you the get, people. Yeah, you get to see like the newest and greatest things, but then also by the people who create them. Yep. Which is like you can't you can't replicate that o over the internet. People yeah. make their videos um, and all that, and that's great. And I know about your. Uh, you know, project what you're doing through Robert, through Bob, and we'll make fun of him later. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he'll be on later too. Yeah. But coming here and then seeing you interact with other people, tell us what Bim Smith is because there's a couple different parts. And then going to my, you know, which part is my favorite. Yeah, sure. So the basic premise uh, for Bim Smith comes out of my time as an architect, uh, frustratedly drafting uh, on on Revit, not having good data to feed in and so I had to manually create all of that as many architects do today and so uh, we sent out to basically spread our arms wide and create a funnel for all the disparate sources of manufacturer data out there and then to be able to take that data and distill it down into a consumable format within Revit uh, or AutoCAD or you know any any other design platform people use AutoCAD that's what I'm told our stats don't show that, but yeah. don't tell anybody. <laughs> no, we, I, I joke with AutoCAD people sure, all the time. Sure, But they deserve it. Sure, yeah. they definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the basic premise is to take all of the data from primary sources like manufacturers, like third-party certification centers and things like that, and provide the AC community with a free tool to be able to get that right into Revit in a very streamlined way. Yep, and so it's free. Tell, what is BIM Forge? So BIM Smith Forge is a wall builder, <coughs> floor builder, ceiling, roof builder uh, that allows you to take disparate parts and bring them together into an assembly. So you can take metal studs, you can take gypsum, paint from Sherwin-Williams, from Bear, from whoever you like, and put it all together into a single assembly and then download it into Revit. Yeah. So uh, I, I just have to reiterate this because some people might be aware a lot of times in, uh, architects will make their own template they'll make their own wall assemblies yep. and you know that'll be their template for that project but a lot of times you have to have um what was what you guys solve is manufacturers would always put out their product let's say a tile so let's talk yep. floors right and i might grab that because i want that tile but they'll do the whole system right well i don't want their structural system right. i don't care what they did that has I'll have to just strip it out yep. or, or delete it. So what Bim Smith Forge does is that you can literally create the structure that you want, and then you could say, oh, I want, let's say, walls, a, a Tyvek weather barrier. Yep. And then you could say on top of that, I want uh, the hardy board. Plank side. siding, yeah. Yeah. And then it makes, you literally pick. And you can do generic, and then you can download that model. Yep. And it makes the specs, too. Yep. Yeah, so we also have the direct integration with Master Spec, so it pulls the three-part specification from the Master Spec tool for all the layers of the assembly into yep. that single data package. So, um, can you re rewind the clock a little bit? How, literally step by step, did you get from an architecture firm? What firm did you work for? Uh, so it was a small firm in Elgin, Illinois, called Allen Peppa Architects. 
Called what? Allen and Peppa Architects. Okay. What did you do there? So I was essentially a BIM manager before we knew what BIM managers were. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that, you know, I oversaw the transition to Revit. Um, I oversaw firm standards. I did a lot of drafting, <laughs> uh, ranging from single-family homes to uh, some of our larger clients like uh, Infinity and some of the others, uh, actual car dealerships. Um, so full range from commercial to residential projects. And really the aha moment for us came out of a project that we were working on um, where we needed a, a Kohler sink. And the sink uh, was not available. And so I drew it. And I got into trouble. It was kind of like a square vessel sink. And I got into trouble for spending the time to draw it. And so and it, one of those. This was Revit, right? So yeah. you modeled it. So I modeled it. Yep. And then I popped it in, and there was uh, a member of our team who kind of came out and said, you're wasting time, take that out, put the standard sink from Revit, the little round vanity sink yeah, that yeah. everybody knows. Yep. And uh, Classic. So, I, uh, so I begrudgingly put it in, and fast forward a few months later, and sure enough, the mechanical engineer, uh, the plumbing engineer had found the Revit sink. And because it was in the... Yep. in the model and uh, from that moment on I was just like there's got to be a better way to do this that you know a draftsman you know to be fair I, I wasn't there weren't billable hours for me to model that sink no. that's but the hardest that's, thing. Yeah. that's the part about it so you know why not be able to source a digital replica of the exact products you're using to ultimately end up in a better design end up with a better building design yep okay well that's you working in the firm. Yep. That's a wee li little lad. Yep. Probably barely. Yeah. Me <laughs> I to a grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> that, how did you, you know, you're what, a year or two older than me? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, how did you get from there? Yeah, so I grabbed another guy in the firm, uh, Freddie, and said, let's do this. And so we started working on the side, um, just kind of going after manufacturers. Nobody knew what Revit was. What year was. is this? So this is like 09, 10. Okay. Uh, so pretty early on before manufacturers were really even thinking about BIM or Revit or any of this. Yeah. And so uh, we started going out for clients and we were able to grow the business to a point where we were able to leave our, our day jobs in the firm and just be doing able BIM to models out. for manufacturers. Yeah, just straight content creation uh, services. And so as time went on, we ended up partnering with Autodesk uh, around the Autodesk Seek platform uh, that yep. used to be out there. And we did a lot of the work for them. And so that really helped us to scale our business even more. Um, ultimately, we decided to create our own uh, platform, now BIMSmith. And uh, the rest is pretty much history. So so BIMSmith has two divisions. Yep. I don't know if you call them divisions. Two, two applications. Yep. Yeah. And one is just a whole bunch of manufacturer's content uh -huh. that you can just grab. Is it mainly models? Uh, model, models and material libraries. Okay. So, like, you can grab the entire Sherwin Williams catalog. Okay. As a material library file and just download that. Yep. And then the other part, the BIMSmith Forge, is the assemblies. Uh, system, yeah. uh, systems. Yeah. Assemblies. Anytime you're taking multiple products and bringing them together, that's the idea with BIMSmith yep. Forge. You were showing me something here that I didn't know when I was at my computer doing it. And I have to reiterate that this is free because I did not know that when I was. Yeah. I didn't want. You know how. You don't want to ask, what does this cost? Right? Well, people just get paranoid, like, yeah. oh, i got to set up a new account. Yep. And, and every time, I swear, every time I set up a new account, it's because they're going to want to charge me later. Yep. So, but that's not this. That's not this. That, because probably one of the main reasons, which I saw here that I didn't know before because I didn't do that, was 
okay, in our architecture firm, we have our templates. And we have, some firms might have a couple different templates. But it's hard to manage all of that because, you know, the BIM manager, there's probably only one for so many. But you can make a project folder in yours. Right. So I could say I have uh, townhomes, right. row homes, yep. where I'll have a party wall system. I, I know what walls I'm going to have. Yep. Gonna, three, UL303. And then I can put them in, in there, in my free account. Yep. So I don't have to wait for a BIM manager exactly. or anything like that. And I could have one for huge multifamily, yep. metal studs. Yep. Everything. Exactly. And you can uh, pull down, so you can make your own walls, but you could also go find a UL number. Yep. You probably have the common ones. Yep. I'm assuming. Yep. Right? And then it will make it for you. Uh, some of them you could probably add on exterior. Yeah, you can add on finishes, things like that. Yeah, because so a lot of times you're just rated from yeah, the inside. exactly. There's not a building within 10 feet. That's a that's for you ARE people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, what what are you most excited about about either what you guys have created or where the possible what you think you might create? And it might not even have to be a, a you know a plan that you're telling sure. your your guys you know you're talking about where. Because a lot of this conference is about what's possible in the sure. future, and it's about egging people on and people just starting. And you can you can see like, oh, in another two years, maybe this will all come together. Yeah. So where's your brain? And maybe it's two questions there, on, on those. Yeah. So for us, one of the things that I I go out and talk about a lot is taking action. Um, I do a lot of coaching with young entrepreneurs and <coughs> people who are have ideas, right? And there's only so much you can do with an idea. Uh, at some point, you need to execute it. And execution really can define the success of a business. And so in a conference like this, we talk a lot about theoretical ideas. And everybody kind of says, yes. you know, the cloud and the buzzwords and the AI and yep. the VR and AR. And everybody kind of throws this fruit salad of buzzwords We can look around, around and just see <laughs> it, That's buzzwords. exactly right. And the thing I get most excited about what our team is doing is we are taking action and we are delivering on concepts that other people have not actually executed on. And fundamental. Like, I, I, I feel like a lot of people, even in the advanced things that we're doing, I would say that you are actually doing something advanced, but you started off from a basic, a very basic idea is that yeah. manufacturing products get mixed yep. into assemblies. Yep. Why not ha replicate the same thing? Digitally. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's really one of the most rewarding things about a conference like this is when somebody wanders into our booth skeptically and then, you know, you can see the lights go on. The, yeah, the light goes on and they're like, wow, you guys are actually doing something here. And that's really rewarding to me. That's like the ultimate compliment is for somebody to say, you're actually doing what we're all talking about doing here. Yeah. And, you know, coming back to that taking action, that that's really what all of us need to do. We can talk about theoretical stuff all day long, but everybody has to find their niche and execute on it. And that's that's one of the biggest messages that, you know, I just want the industry to embody is, yep. you know, when we all go back to our workstations after the conference, you know, are you going to go back into your normal grind or are you going to lock in and move the needle? And, and that's a choice that we all make uh, yeah. in our respective spheres of influence. So, uh, is, is that the answer to the current? And and this conference goes on for another day and a half, essentially. Sure. A little bit more than that. Is there anything that's piquing your interest that you're going to apply? Or, or 
to go to the second part of the question, anything that you're th you're thinking about that you're yeah. going to... I mean, we just love being here to talk to our customers. So just to be able to say, hey, could you do this? Hey, can you integrate yep. with that? Um, you know, that's a big focus for me is making sure that we can connect to the other tools and workflows that our customers are already using. We don't want to come in with a sledgehammer and say, blow up your workflow and come with us. Yeah. We want to fit in and dovetail and augment existing workflows. So it's great to see. I mean, this is a, a showcase of workflows. So yeah. figuring out the ones that are the most legitimate and the most widely acceptable, uh, that's that's a really great conversation to have in a, a forum like this. So, and, and I think that's the essence of what you guys are doing, is, is that when you boil it down, I don't know if you thought about it consciously or not, and it sounds like you have, is that what is the workflow? How do we make something match the, the workflow? It's not more complicated th right. than that, really. And we saw that evident in, in the um, keynote address where, you know, I didn't come last year, but everyone's talking about uh, generative design, 3D printing, mm -hmm. additive, you know, manufacturing. And it seems like just from what they showed this time that they kind of came back and they said, okay, not only do we have that, but now it can make molds. Now we can mi yeah. mill. So, like, it, it's like they backtracked a little bit and said, we can make that generative design, but then you can produce it these yeah. other ways because they probably got pushback. Like, oh, that's great. We're not about to retool our entire factory for additive manufacturing after we've invested billions. Yes. Yeah. And I thought that was an actually a, a very bold statement to make during the keynote. We're not ready for full-on retooling and additives, so how can we augment the existing workflow? That's actually a pretty courageous thing to say yep. on a stage of a conference this big to your point years ago it was a, we're going to take over the world without the manufacturing well it may not be ready for that yet and so how can we provide the stepping stones in the meantime to still create value for other people yeah that's that's the reality are you solving a real problem or are you solving a problem that you just made up in your head are yeah. you chasing windmills so you've had a couple i'll call it evolutions in your career and I'll, I'll t tell a story, but I want to ask, how do you stay on top of that? And, and here's my, for example, we interviewed someone from uh, NASA that wanted to actually work at our firm. Mm. And some of the guys were maybe getting a little intimidated, but I thought everyone deals with the same BS. You know, at the same level, whether you are making your own company with, with Bim Smith, you still got to deal with people. Everything is, sure. is, is you know, essentially the, the same. And... Uh, he said one of their studies, they were studying whether they need to prototype everything in NASA or when can the computer model take precedence. And, and they did this whole project just to decide that. And in my head, I go, oh, that's simple. I, we do the 3D model until it's absolutely necessary to spend the money for a mock-up. Yeah. And I go, this is how uh, entrepreneurs, how startups beat giants, Yeah. is that they... And it's the same people. It's the same thing when, when I talk to firms who are in AutoCAD, and they say, "Hey, I have all these blocks in AutoCAD. I have this. Can Revit do that?" And you're like, "No, no, no. It does it a little bit different." And they have all their entrenched reasons. Yeah. Where another young, you know, guy just out of school or a young firm's like, "Oh no, no. We're doing Revit. We're doing it fundamentally. We're going to use BIM Smith. Like this is going to be great." And they get hung up in the old way of right. of, of thinking. How do you? keep that fresh do you think about that in your mind how do we keep ourselves from getting stagnant yeah and, and you have you know I, I know you kind of briefly went over your career but you worked at a firm then you know you worked for AutoCAD then you made your own thing so like you've been pivoting kind of this whole time 
Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's all about just the layers of experience. And that brings authenticity to the work that you do. Right. So working in a firm prepared me to be able to say I have an experience that can be leveraged for a manufacturer. Yes. And then working with manufacturers in partnership with Autodesk Seek paved the way to say, okay, we can do even that better. Yep. And so it's, it's kind of in some ways a confidence building thing in a lot of career moves is each step prepares you for the next bigger step. And, and in some cases it may slingshot you into the next step. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's no way we would be where we are with Vim Smith today if we hadn't had the previous experiences that we did. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think Revit is really allowing the people just entering the firm to have more confidence because you're modeling like it's going to be built. Right. So I know we keep bringing it back to your company and I'm not trying to plug no, it this much, fine. but it, it just so, for example, I, I remember when I first started out, you'd be called out into the field and there'd be some grumpy contractor yep. who's yelling at you about yep. something. And you'd be like, I don't really know. I kind of know. And I remember when it clicked and it clicked actually really quickly. Oh, let me just look at the model. Let me just look at the model and see if the levels are where you think the level should be. Because the model will tell me because yes. I modeled them correctly because I got the G GPS. I mean, the, the topo in, you know, yep. information and all that. I know my floor thicknesses are that. So when you say you can't build something because of height, let me just look. Yep. And th that, you know, that translates into... I just want to give people the confidence is that if you're using these workflows and, and these tools the way that they're supposed to be used, you can have the confidence to go out and say, hey, no, no, I went, I went to Bimsmith. This is UL303. This is how it goes together. I can even open another tab, go double check yep. that it's that way. Right. So when I go out in the field and they say, blah, 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 you, you could even print out that sheet and it might be your second month at the office yep. and you will be correct. Yeah. And it's objective. Yeah. Providing objective data and removing anecdotal, you know, uh, perceptions about things. Yeah. We do it this way. Yeah. I, oh, that's great. I, I tell my team all the time, I hate anecdotes. Don't talk to me in anecdotes. Give yep. me the data. Show me. Um, I think too often good ideas get killed by anecdotes. Yeah. I mean, put that on my, put that on my grave marker. <laughs> you know, that, that is one of the most important things for young professionals to understand is that the world is changing at a pace that has never changed before in the history of humankind. That was another theme of the keynote. And there is there's no time or tolerance for speaking in anecdotes. Yep. I heard in another stat it was it had nothing to do with this conference, but it, it was the same theme. They said the population is growing by whatever X percent. They said every day 400,000 people come in the middle, get moved up to the middle class. That number is huge if you think about yeah. the possibilities. Yes. And that was what the theme was is we're not stopping building. There is millions and millions of housing. There's millions of cars that need to be made. There is a ton of work to do. Um, and even, who knows, we might have a little bit of a recession. And I'm sure you went through it last yep. time. but. People know that that's temporary, and you can start to work on some of these ideas and hone these ideas. How, how did you handle the recession, actually? Well, I mean, that was around the time that we were starting the business. We kind of started in the pit of the recession. I had lots of colleagues that were getting laid off. Um, one of the firms that I worked at, 
actually came in and sent us home. They said, hey, uh, we don't have any work for you for this week. That's it. And, you know, that was it. And I understand the situation everyone was in back then, but, um, you know, kind of thinking out of the box and saying, I don't want to be reliant on someone else's poor planning, you yep. know, for my own success. That's kind of the fuel that fed the fire for us to have the guts to go out and start a company. Yep. And you can do the everyone listening can do the same things that you did where, okay, my boss who's been running this firm for a while is doing it this way where he uses generic models. And I think it would be more closer to reality if I modeled the actual thing. So whatever that idea is yeah. where for some reason, time constraints, everyone has to bill out. Yep. Uh, just the process, you, you can't do it that way. These are ideas that you can develop in the future, especially if it, they make sense to you process wise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's really the thing to remember. Um, you know, we talk about on our team that you have the the what, you have the when, you have the why, and you have the how. And a lot of times we don't get to change when a project is due, no. or why we're building a project, or what we're even building. Yeah. But we can change the how, and we have a sign on our wall in our office that says, um, "If the how sucks, change it." I like that. And so, I mean, that's that's really one of the biggest things that, as practitioners, we can fully control within our own, you know, reasonable intent is the how. Because yeah. so many other things are dictated by our clients. And the how is really where the success can be made or lost in, in the execution. Are you developing or taking on tools? So you make tools for architects to use. Do you make tools for your guys to use, for you to use oh, when yeah. you're creating? Yeah, we have a whole catalog of um, scripts, add-ons, uh, little software widgets, and, and then layered with good process uh, for our internal team. So we've, we've got a whole framework of how we work as a team together. And um, software void of process um, is far less meaningful. Yep. Um, you can build all the to tools and widgets you want, but it kind of goes back to what we're talking about with workflows. If you don't have the good workflow to augment software, you're only going to be able to go so far with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, Ben. Any anything else? No, I just uh, I appreciate the, the time and I've enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, good to have you on. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed all three of those uh, interviews. I had a great time at Autodesk U. I think you should go next year. These are just three of the six interviews that I have. So stay tuned and I'll be releasing three more uh, in the future. I don't know when, but uh, if you follow the podcast, we'll probably queue it up and let you know when they're going to come out. Again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this um, and if you want to hear more of me, you can do so by going to RevitRocketship.com. That's where you can learn how to model uh, and make families and projects in Revit. We also give you our template that we use here in the firm that we've been developing over years um, that's really honed to make you very, very productive. You can also get our book, The Creativity Code, on Amazon. That talks about architecture and design. We think you'll really like that. And then also, last but not least, please share this with your friends, with your colleagues, with fellow students. If you like it, let them know um, what podcast you like. Maybe it's this one. And thanks, everyone. Also, please give us a review on uh, iTunes. That really, really helps out 
So if anything, if you did enjoyed a couple of these, uh, a, a review would be very, very helpful. Thanks a lot. Bye.